the frogs will be giving the Dharma talk tonight. <laughs> I said that once on a different retreat, and I, I made that question like, so what are they, what might, be the, what might they be saying? And someone said, me, over here, over here. <laughs> it's a mating call. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> We're kind of similar, really, aren't we? <laughs> me, 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 look at me, it's all about me. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what this, ultimately, this practice is all about. It's understanding this mystery of me, of I, of who we take ourselves to be. To see the myths and the stories and the beliefs and the fantasies and the ideas and the projections and the way that we run around building up and protecting and projecting and tidying up our personality and bolstering our identity, right? And most of it happens where? It happens in here, in our little coconut that nobody ever sees that we spend most of our time obsessing, planning, proliferating the great movie of me and my life, right? With all of its dramas and its fears and successes and hopes and gains and right? and it's mostly a bunch of stories a bunch of stuff made up in our head yeah? that causes a tremendous amount of suffering it's partly what we get to look at it's why our minds are so busy in meditation because they're working out the story of me and my life my plans and my ideas and expectations and goals. Not a bad thing necessarily, unless we take it too seriously. Unless we believe everything it says. Then we get into trouble. That's not what I plan to talk about tonight, but it seems like a good subject to talk about. Because <laughs> it's really what's going on, right? The obsession with me and my life and my dramas. The Buddha said, attachment to this illusory sense of self is the cause of suffering, is the foundation of the cause of suffering. This identity that we work to create and mold and prop up and project and polish and shout out, me, me, look over here, me, me. And it's painful. It's insecure. That need for attention, for reflection. So partly what meditation practice does is it reveals, it reveals the stories of ourselves, the stories of our mind. The Buddha called it papancha, the proliferating tendency of mind to create and weave stories about life and ourselves. As Mark Twain put it, the worst things in my life never actually happened, but I spent a lifetime thinking about them. Right? <laughs> that is one of the painful sides of papancha, this proliferation. So 
So we can be sitting in meditation and we feel a little rumble in our stomach. Our stomach feels a little empty. And we think, oh, it's only 7.24 and we've had dinner and the next meal is until 7.15. That's a long way away. I wonder if I could sneak out to Fairfax, the local town, and get a pizza. I wonder if they'll still be open after the Dharma talk. I hope the Dharma talk's short tonight. But you know, I could go to Berkeley because that's my favorite pizza place there. They do that really nice, thin Italian crust pizza. Not as good as the one I had in Rome, which was really amazing. Maybe I should go on holiday in Rome this summer. Really load up on, yeah, maybe take a pizza cooking course so I can make it at home. Make it for my friends. I don't see my friends enough. I think I work too hard. You know, maybe I should ask for a sabbatical. Don't know if I can get through the, the year with that kind of money, but, you know, maybe dig into my 401k and, right? Does that sound familiar? And then the bell goes, <laughs> and that was your meditation. <laughs> so, which brings me back to my start of my talk, what I was going to plan to talk about, which is, um, there's a cartoon here, it's a ripoff of, I think, American Idol, or So You Think You Can Dance, and it has a caption, So You Think You Can Meditate. And there's three judges looking at this person on the stage in a bright white light meditating. It's the next reality show to hit cable TV, so you think you can meditate. You might not get such great ratings. But that's the question for you, so you think you can meditate now after a weekend of meditation? Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe you feel like you've mastered it. Maybe you feel like, oh my God, I'm just at the very, very beginning of the beginning, or somewhere in between. Well, hope is available. There is a course that I have for you. It's called... um, Uh, Where is it? The five-level ultra-meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe. (laughs) In 28 minutes, it says you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. And there's a picture of a woman levitating with a headset on and doing the supercharged brain meditation, which I actually have to confess I tried. (laughs) Because, you know, it's a good ad, right? It's like... If it works, I want to do it in 28 minutes. Of course, I fell asleep, actually, is what happened. (laughs) So, there, as you may have noticed, there are not many shortcuts (laughs) to this practice. We like to think there are, but really to work with our mind and our hearts and our bodies and uh, all the things that go on in our experience, there's no shortcuts Another cartoon for you. This is my cartoon Dharma talk. So there's three captions. It's called The History of Man. So the first caption, The History of Man. The second caption, there's a man scratching his head, thinking, what the hell is happening here? And the third caption, The End. (laughs) So we're in the middle. In case you're wondering where you were, we're in the middle. What the hell is happening here? You might wonder when you sit down to meditate, right? And your mind is all over the place and it's vacationing in Rome 
and fixing a relationship that ended 25 years ago and fantasizing <laughs> about someone you've been lusting after for five years. And like, what? Is this what it's about? <laughs> is this what it means to be human? Maybe it is. So that's what we come to explore here. We come to explore our humanness in all of its naked glory. Yeah? You may notice the, the mind has no shame. It will think and judge and do anything, say anything about ourselves, about another person, our inflation, our deflation. You may have touched moments of sublime bliss. Anybody had moments of sublime happiness, peace, joy? Yeah, some. And then you might go descend to the depths of pain and loneliness and fear and despair and sadness and grief and loss. Anybody had some of those realms? Yeah, a few more hands went up on that and I asked that question. <laughs> and everything in between. You know, maybe, maybe there's a lot of numbness and sleepiness. How about that for some people? Numbness, sleepiness, yeah, plenty of hands go up, yeah. And of course, the question is, we're always asked in this practice is, how do we meet that? How do we show up? How do we be present? How do we hold it and be with it with kindness, with awareness, with a welcoming, accepting attitude so we can experience it, we can receive it, we can understand it, we can learn from it, we can grow, we can learn to let go if necessary, or to have compassion if necessary, or to transform if necessary. Yeah? But not an easy practice to do, not, to, not so easy to face all of the ups and downs of our humanness. We normally have a lot of checkout options, right? That's what th- turns the wheels of the GDP, is our wheels of distraction. In other words, TV, or sports, or you, you name it. You know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of access to distraction. And here we ask you to give them all up for a weekend and to go, oh, shit, (laughs) it's just me. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. So one of the things I want to talk about tonight, and I'll touch on it in pieces, is uh, really a way of looking at the overview of the map of this practice. And that's within the framework of uh, one of the Buddha's teachings, the central teaching really, which is on the Four Noble Truths, which is really his way of sort of overviewing the human experience and the path from uh, suffering or pain or anguish to peace. And And many of you are probably familiar with this teaching, so this will be a review. And the first of those uh, truths, which is uh, common and familiar to all of us, is there is suffering. There is unsatisfactoriness in life. You might think, duh. (laughs) I got that one. I got a PhD in that one. But do we really have a PhD? We may know about it, but do we really understand it? Do we really experience it? Do we really allow it? Do we really learn from it? Or do we spend our whole life running away from it, trying to avoid it, trying to stuff the pain, escape the numbness, reject the boredom, 
hide from the fear and anxiety? Or do we turn to face all of those challenging things? Some, the Buddha defined this, this, this first noble truth in different ways. He said, it's, um, it's not getting what you want, losing what, getting what, not getting what you, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you have, and being separated from that which you love. Sound familiar? Not getting what you want? That's kind of obvious. <laughs> we spend a lot of time thinking about that one. I want what I don't have. What were you wanting in this retreat that you didn't get? Anybody? Peace? Dessert. Dessert. <laughs> There's another answer for you. Where's the chocolate cake? <laughs> Normally the last night of retreat we get chocolate cake. What's up with that? There must be a budget cut or something. <laughs> right, so we don't get dessert, whatever dessert is for us, physical or metaphorical. <laughs> Getting what you don't want. Anybody get the body that they wanted? Did you like, you know, be, get a catalog, like, oh, I'll take one of those long, thin ones, and I'll take a stocky, strong one. No, you just get the body you get, and it changes. Did you ask it to change? <laughs> Did you ask it to get fatter or thinner or older or more crooked or wrinkly or, you know, gray? Or... No, it just happens. What about your mind? Did you ask for the mind that you, did you get the mind that you wanted? Yeah, what kind of mind would you like? Did you want a mind that's incredibly restless and distracted? Busy and spacey? Or obsessive and compulsive? Anybody feel like they got OCD after sitting in a retreat? <laughs> Seeing the way the mind just fixates, fixates on things? People's breath? You know, the, the most minutiae minutia of things we obsess about. Or we just check out. You know, beautiful spring day and we check out. We've probably planned to, you know, aspire to be at Spirit Rock for six months and we check out most of the time. That's unsatisfactory. So really the more accurate description for this truth is it's unsatisfactory. Even the most perfect moment or day, there's some unsatisfactoriness because it, what, it's not, we can't hold on to it. It doesn't stay around very long. Even the chocolate cake, the best chocolate cake in the world, it's unsatisfactory because you know, there's only so much we can eat. You know, we can try eating a few helpings and then we feel sick. <laughs> and then we wish we hadn't eaten any. So there's a bunch of research studies being done about how often the mind is meandering and spacing out. And the range is in different studies between 45 and 60 to 70% of the day. The, the mind is not present to what's happening. So in case you were thinking you're just the only weird human that isn't present, you're in good company. That's why we train. That's why we practice. Anybody ask for the family that you were born into? <laughs> not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. Yeah, it can be very challenging. Often a lot of what we work with is the residue from our conditioning. We can look at our critic and, and see 
how the traces of those voices often come back to our early conditioning. And often very painful. And I'm talking about this lightly, but this truth is also meeting the incredible painfulness of life. I work with a student who had a very, very painful uh, family situation. She, she was very physically debilitated as a young child and it was very challenging for her family. And her mother said, it would have been better if you had died. Right? And that's not the first time I've heard that kind of severity of brutality said to children. You know? and, how we, and how that scars us for life and how we have to navigate life through that lens of not being worthy to be here, worthy to be loved, worthy to be alive. And maybe in yours is not that extreme, but you know, we all have our own challenges in that way. I work with a student who is very, very wealthy and, but didn't get to see her parents because she was always looked after by the help and was abused by the help. You know? And very, very privileged from the outside family, but from the inside, very, very traumatic. There's a story, um, I think it's from the 60s, of an athlete, Billy Mills, who was Native American, the first Native American to win a, uh, a medal in the Olympics for America. But there was a time of great racism and segregation, and so he wasn't really allowed to be recognized when he came back home to this country. Incredibly painful, spent his life training to be this great athlete to perform for his country, but because of racism, wasn't recognized. Very painful. And he wrote this some point later in his life, and he said, I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given the life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. Instead, I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for yet all my wishes came true. So, as often happens with these incredibly painful experiences, when we meet them and metabolize them, they become great sources of wisdom. You see the, the deep wisdom that's in that, in that spirit, very painful and yet very wise. So the first noble truth there is unsatisfactoriness. The good news is there is release. There is freedom from suffering. The third noble truth, which is the good news of this practice, is it's possible to be free from the suffering that we create with our minds and our reactivities and our ignorance. That is the good news. You can smile now. <laughs> As I think, I, I think I mentioned this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Did I say this quote? Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So 
the teachings of this path are very pragmatic. The Buddha laid out this map. This is what causes suffering. The tendency to grasp, to hold on, to attach, to demand things be the way that we want them to be, to try to control things or people. And to try and avoid and reject and get away and escape from that which we don't want, that which we don't like. The aversion, fear, hatred, anger, tendencies to reject everything that we don't want. So we move through life running after things, trying to hold on to them, like crushing the flower that's beautiful, and avoiding that which is inevitable, like aging, like sickness. As the saying goes, suffering equals pain times resistance. So there's inevitable pain of life. Like the Buddha had backache. He didn't, he didn't, his, his enlightenment didn't make his backache go away. That's not the point. The point is, did he suffer in relationship to the backache? One would think not, because there was, sent, there was wisdom of knowing this is how it is. The body gets old, gets tired, gets achy, gets sick. And you maybe learn in moments in this retreat, moments of freedom, moments of what's called nibbana, or freedom, where you were able to maybe first feel some physical pain, and this little immediate habitual knee-jerk reaction, oh no, not that, I didn't come to Spirit Rock to feel my backache, I hoped that injury would leave me. Oh no, it's back, and then we tense and we tighten, and guess what happens to the pain? Gets worse. And then, and then, miraculously, a moment of mindfulness dawns and goes, oh, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe I can actually just soften my contraction. Maybe I, maybe I can see that when I let go, it's, it, it, there's more ease. Maybe I can know that the pain's going to arise and I know it's going to pass because everything is impermanent. Maybe if I bring a moment of kindness to it, it actually softens. Maybe if I feel the suffering of it, I can feel my heart's opening to compassion and it's easier. Any of that sound familiar? Those moments where we turn to something that we habitually reacted to, fought with, hated, was angry about, felt victimized by, and then we see the story, the self-story that we've created, and we realize, oh, I don't need to do it that way. There's another way to be with it as it is, to bring some acceptance. Like Dinah was saying, with the rain, acceptance, allowing, oh, pain, oh, it's like this. And now it's like this. And it's tolerable if I don't add the story, oh my God, what happens if it's gonna be here for the next three weeks? That's unbearable, three years or three decades. But if I can just feel the tingling, I worked with this woman in an MBSR class, mindfulness-based stress reduction class at a Kaiser uh, um, um, pain clinic. And she had intense chronic neck pain for about 10 years. And we would get people who the doctors had given up on. The medicine didn't work. The surgeries didn't work. And they were left with, well, you know, can you help? Can you help these people with mindfulness? And there's a lot of great data about how this practice helps people deal with, with chronic pain conditions. 
And at some point in the class, maybe after like the fourth or fifth week, she came back from the week away doing her home practice. And she said, I'm very excited. I finally was able to be, to have some moments where I could be just with the pain as it was without all my fear and contraction. And I realized it wasn't actually as bad as I, as I feared it was. I'd spent 10 years in resistance and contraction around it. I never actually felt the pain in the middle of it. All I was feeling was my fear and contraction. And when that softened, I felt the pain. It was still painful, but it was bearable. And I wasn't miserable around it. That's, that's a moment of liberation right there. So this practice is a preparation for how we meet life, and particularly how we meet the challenging circumstances. Because how we learn to meet what's here in ourselves, whether it's our challenging emotions, our difficult physical ailments, our restlessness and boredom, or whatever else is going on, judging mind, guess what happens when we meet that in other people, in the world, in relationships, in our companies, wherever we are? in our families, if we've learned how to be, find some peace or ease or kindness or friendliness with this here, then when, it, when I see it in you and you, I'm not going, oh, keep that away from me. I'm not rejecting and reacting. I can tolerate it. Or when a person triggers fear in me, and I've been working a lot with my fear in the meditation, I'm not hating them for triggering the fear in me. There's some space I can go, wow, that's really scary when I'm with this, and I'm having to confront this person. And I can hold the fear and still stay in communication. That's an incredibly great skill to have. This is from Suzuki Roshi, great Zen teacher. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then there you are, tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. So maybe you had those moments where you realized you couldn't do anything about what was happening. You couldn't get rid of the grief. You couldn't get rid of the pain. You couldn't get rid of whatever it was that you were not liking. And it was another 20 minutes before the bell rang and you just surrendered. You just decided to sit with it. And you realize, oh, I can do this. I don't have to escape into fantasy land. I don't have to blame somebody. I can just open to it with awareness. What I was speaking to about that quote from Viktor Frankl, about the space between the stimulus and the response. And I'm going to repeat that quote because it's such a pithy quote for what we're doing here. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and happiness, or I would say our freedom. One psychology is called response flexibility, where we have space and wisdom to know how to respond Mindfulness is an appropriate response to what's happening. Usually if we react and hate and grasp, we're just adding suffering to suffering. So 
So unlike a normal response, Dharma teachings are inviting us to turn towards our experience, whether it's beautiful, blissful, boring, or difficult. Yeah. This is a very counterintuitive, countercultural move to turn towards difficulty. This is a piece from Jan Chosen Bays, who's a Zen teacher from Southern Cal. She writes, and talking to the spirit of turning, she says, if there is cost, and she says, I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being, what, being with what is, I respond to what is. So in some ways, that's a beautiful, for me, that's a beautiful synopsis of what we're doing here. Responding to what is by being with what is, with presence, with openness, with acceptance. And in that, there's a lot of spaciousness and there's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of ease. So the opposite of suffering isn't happiness, but it's peace, it's ease, it's freedom, responsiveness. So is this making sense? This, this, I think by now you've been practicing for several days. This, this, you've been turning towards your experience to the breath, to sensations, to feelings, to thoughts, to emotion. And just seeing what happens in that movement. Very, very powerful. And what this does is it, it's a support for this, this, this quality of disidentification. When we can rest in the, in the awareness or rest in be the knowing rather than the conditions that we're known. Usually we're caught and trapped in the middle of the conditions. We're wrapped up in the fear or the reactivity or the shame or the anger. And there's no space between us and it. When we, as we cultivate mindfulness, there's more spaciousness. It's, it's, it's if we, we don't actually detach ourselves, we don't disengage from experience, but it's as if we have greater observational power. There's more space. The Buddha said mindfulness is, is, is one way of looking at it. It's like a watchtower. We're looking. We're not really looking at it from above, but it gives that sense of spaciousness or perspective where there's space, where there's some uh, disidentification. Yeah? And in that there's some ease. And we, see, we, can, we can maybe see for time, we see our mind and we see the busyness of our thoughts and we don't get caught up in the thoughts. We just see, wow, the mind is like that. It's really busy. Wow, look at that. It's not me, it's not mine, they're not my thoughts. It's just the mind, the brain, thinking thoughts. What about that? Or we see a, a big tidal wave of, 
of, of sadness come. No story, just, it just comes and we feel tears and we feel heavy. It comes, stays around for a while and it passes away. You don't have to do anything about it, don't make a story about it, you don't have to fix it, you don't have to get rid of it. Right? And there's a lot of peace in, in resting in the awareness and seeing all of this stuff come and go, come and go. That's the refuge. Re- awareness is the refuge. It's the true uh, ballast in the ups and downs of, the, of, of life. This is a poem I wrote called Duty. And it speaks to this turning. It says, your only duty is not to run. Even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare. You can always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in even more empty. But there are times when there's no choice but to turn towards where you are, to touch the empty places inside you've spent a lifetime running from, touching with delicate hands of love the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins this slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So there's a practice of being with, which we've explored extensively with the mindfulness practice. There's a practice that Dinah was pointing to today of resourcing, where sometimes it's wise to be with something. Sometimes it's wise, if it's chronic pain or overwhelming emotion, to shift the attention elsewhere. So we're not just passively with things. We don't become a doormat. Mindfulness supports wise action or wise responsiveness. So whether it's with ourselves or whether it's with our children or in a meeting, the, that clarity informs wise action. So I remember I was on a retreat many years ago and it was one of those retreats from hell. It was a long retreat. And um, it was so difficult. It was, really, it was hard for me to actually be in the hall and meditate. I was, I was really overwhelmed with a lot of suffering. And so um, my, what I call resourcing, which is shifting the attention to whatever helps you come to balance in the moment. For me, at part, for parts of that retreat, my practice was to go hiking in the woods um, and listening to music uh, that I, I borrowed. This shows you how old the story is. I borrowed a Sony Walkman <laughs> from my teacher and some of his music. And that was a way I was, the the pain was so intense that it was too much to be within the hall, too much to be within the formal silence. So I had to, I had to give myself a wide berth 
you know, hiking, walking, nature, music, anything that helped me hold the difficulty. And I said to him, I said, I feel like a terrible yogi. All these people are sitting in there. They're all serious, walking up and down, meditating really like good yogis. And I'm out listening to music, stomping through the snow and talking to trees. And, and, and he said, if you have to understand practice is all about balance and how and whatever, whatever creates balance for you to be able to be with the moment. And sometimes we need to be very, very microscopic and, and careful and detailed and sensitive and attuned and slow and turned in and touching that ourselves with incredible delicate hands of love, with gloves. And other times we have to like, no, we need a big wide meadow, like you give a raging stallion, you give him a big pasture to roam around and to, 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 to burn off that energy, that fire, that frustration, the rage, the fear, the sorrow. You know? So to know that that's part of your toolkit, it doesn't just have to be this slow sitting and walking, that's one methodology. And turning towards is one methodology. Sometimes it's not the right methodology. It's not a one size fits all. Sometimes you need to bust a hike up a hill. That's what you need to move the anger and the rage. Sometimes you need to lie down on the earth because you've got so much anxiety and restlessness you need to feel the grounding quality of the earth. So to expand what your idea of what practice is, practice is what helps you bring awareness and and wisdom and kindness to the moment. So what else do we bring to our experience? To understand it, we bring investigation. The Buddha said this is the most important factor of awakening was investigation, inquiry, to, under, to, 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 to reflect and to look deeply. So mindfulness is a support for investigation because it takes us close and intimate to our experience. And so the, the second noble truth really is an exploration of understanding, well, what, what causes suffering? What are the causes? Why do I, why am I at Spirit Rock for three days? It's a beautiful weekend, spring, grass, deers, turkeys, flowers, blossoms, bandits in the hills, you know, we've got it all here. <laughs> Helicopters, a bit of action, you know, police drama, they're probably filming it for some reality TV show. You know, we've got it all, right? Except chocolate cake. And we're not happy. Or we're feeling miserable, or we're feeling deprived, or we're feeling bored, or we're feeling restless, or we're feeling empty, or if, you know, you name it. There's a lot of different things here that not so not so fun. Why is that? Why are we? Why might we be suffering when we have all the the you know the physical conditions taken care of? No, no work, no cooking, no cleaning, no email, no Facebook. Oh, hallelujah. So we want to look, so what's getting in the way of me simply being at peace here? Yeah. Right now, what is, what is obscuring your capacity simply to be at, feel well-being? Ease, joy, peace. Each of you will be, maybe it's accessible right now. If you don't look to your mind, you don't look to the past, you just say, well, right here, is there a problem? I just look just to, the, just to the truth of my experience. Is peace accessible right here? 
if we don't go to the story, well, I'm not good enough and I've got to be more mindful and, you know, my work situation is terrible and my relationship needs work. And if we just let all that go and like, well, what's here right now? The sounds, sensations, sights, perception, feelings coming and going. Is there a problem? Well, of course, most of the time there is. (laughs) And let me tell you the list. (laughs) I've got a catalog (laughs) of what needs fixing in my life and in my body and in my relationship and in my financial situation. And, you know, you name it. Another meditation cartoon from Subconscious Comics. So there's a guy sitting in meditation in a dark room and a light comes on. Hmm, what's that? Looks good. I want it. I've got to have it. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. And then he gets it. Yes, yes, yes. Falls over in bliss. And the next caption is back in the dark room. And the light comes on. Hmm, what's that? It's called the wheel of samsara. It's called our lives. They want to be here, oh, but what's that? Oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? So one of the ways we experience it on retreat, uh, this tendency of the wanting mind, the grasping mind, the lusting mind, the insatiably unsatisfied hunger that we have uh, that drives us outside of ourselves to seek happiness. That sound familiar? Maybe a little bit? Chocolate cake, something? <laughs> Fill in the blanks. So often it manifests here as what we call the Vipassana romance. So the VR, as we call it, happens when um, you're sitting, you know, maybe you're sitting in the dining room and you're just mindfully eating your peas, you know, <laughs> and then you notice somebody that the, you know, walks by and you go, kind of cute. And then you let it go because you're a good yogi. Just come back to your peas. Just noticing, (laughs) liking, liking, desire, desire. Come back to your peas. (laughs) And then they happen to sit right in front of you. It's like, wow, it's a sign. It's a sign. Forget about the peas. (laughs) And you don't, you try not to look at them because you're not supposed to be looking at each other, but you're kind of like, you know. You know, and then of course the mind starts fixating. You know, maybe, and then you realize you're actually sitting next to each other in the Dharma hall. Wow. It really must mean something. Or your shoes end up together outside in the cloakroom. <laughs> and they're almost touching. Almost feels intimate. A little shudder, you know. And then, of course, the mind starts churning, you know. Ah, I wonder if they're available. What would it be like, you know, until we plan the whole relationship when we, we get together after the retreat and we go for a hike and we start dating and it's all great. Of course, it's great, right? And it's great sex and it's great everything and it's soulmate material. They're, even they meant to meditation. Come on, it's a good thing. We get married, we have kids and, you know, the house and the garden and the dogs and, and then 
It's like, well, I don't know, but they seem a little uptight, you know, and then we see the divorce starting happening, the breakup, <laughs> the tension, and the settlements, and the alimony, and all ends in tears. And then someone else catches our eye. <laughs> oh, <laughs> more candy. Sound familiar? And if it's not a VR, it's something else, right? Maybe it's someone's shawl. Oh, they've got that nice gold pashmina. Mmm, that looks really good. I bet if I had that, my meditation would be so zen. I'd be so, like, right there. So, and that, you know, that's what we do in our lives. We, we go from one thing to the next, whether it's a career or money or a house or a, it's, an, it's an insatiable longing. And we don't see the suffering because we get fooled by the deliciousness of the thing that we're seeking. We get entranced by that. But the longing and the sense of separation, the feeling of the lack and the craving, that's really painful. It's the opposite of peace. Peace and craving, grasping, do not exist in the same moment. Those delicious moments that you've had in your life, whether watching a sunset or being with a dear one or whatever, they happen in moments of absence of grasping, where there's just presence. So to pay attention to this movement of mind, this forward-seeking mind. And then the opposite is true, the, the, the aversive mind, the rejecting mind. And we can have a Vipassana vendetta, as someone who really just annoys us because the way their nylon pants shuffle in the meditation, because they come in late too often. Or, you know, and these are trivial things, but, you know, of course our mind fixates here because nothing else to fixate on. In, in, in our lives, it's a bigger thing. It might be politicians or it might be, you know, all kinds of issues. And then again, we, to see, to see and, we, and the ego likes, likes getting off on that sense of, you know, judgment and, and righteous indignation. But actually, we, when we look at that, it's painful, it's, it's separating. And we look at that, how we reject our own experience, the aversion, the fear, the hatred. Very painful when we look at it. I was teaching a retreat in, uh, not te- teaching, I was taking a retreat in Bodh Gaya in India, and uh, they had this... Um, it was a 20-day silent retreat, and the village, which was used to be far away, had sort of grown up around the monastery. And um, one year, a travel agency had set up shop, and often happens in India, they put loudspeakers on top of the, the, the store, and they advertise what they're selling. In this case, it was bus tickets. And it was, it was the era of cassette tapes. It's feeling old, cassette tapes. And they had an advert for these bus tickets, on, and they would broadcast it. And it was really loud, and we were in this big room like this, but it was all concrete. So just sound bounced off everywhere. And then the, the tape loop went like this. Hello? 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 And of course, you immediately go, oh, yes. <laughs> you want to retreat, right? There was someone saying hello, how exciting. Oh, hello. And then it would say some words in Hindi, which I didn't understand. And then you'd hear Bombay, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Delhi, Madras and a whole bunch more words in Hindi, and then the tape would rewind. <laughs> Hello? 
Hello, 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 hello. And on it would go. And it was like day two of a 20-day retreat. So you can imagine, it's like, kill me now. And we weren't allowed to go outside of the retreat you know, grounds. We couldn't practice nonviolent direct action and dismantle it and you know, get the wire clippers out and plead and bribe or whatever. And we just had to sit with it. It was like the helicopters, but for 20 days. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> and, you know, so of course it was like, first it was like, oh, no. First it was righteous indignation, and then, then horror, and then hatred, and then homicidal rage, and then depression. It was like the stages of grief. And at some point, after many days, you just had to give up. It was just acquiescence. And it was surrender. It was like, ugh. And then, just, and then the realization came, well, really, the suffering wasn't from the sounds. It was from this. It was from me thinking it shouldn't happen, thinking it was a problem, thinking my life would be happy if it went away, and all that stuff. And I realized it didn't go away, but I was still able to find some peace. And at some point, it became humorous. And and so the great lesson from that was we think the object of our problem, our aversion, our hatred, our fear, our anger is out there. And actually it's in the reactivity in our mind. So try that exercise. Next time you're watching TV and you you go to the TV channel that does not support your political orientation (laughs) and see where the source of suffering lies. Is it in the TV and the politician or is it in the reactivity here? So lastly, what I want to talk about is um, perhaps in a way one of the most important things in relationship to whether we're working with suffering, the causes of suffering, these forces of grasping and aversion, is the response of kindness and compassion. That this stuff is hard. The de- my definition of dukkha, which is the, the, Buddhist, the Buddha's word for, for suffering, my definition is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be a conscious human being and try to wake up and live a life and work and have a relationship and you know, deal with email and, and deal with inevitable sorrows and losses and fears and challenges and traumas that are part of living. And the appropriate response to that is, is what? Is compassion, is kindness, is care, is friendliness, is warmth. Right? When, when we're feeling lonely and struggling in the meditation and we're feeling how hard it is and we're feeling despair or frustration, right? the, the, the only appropriate response really is compassion. To meet that, and, to, and, and the compassion arises when we meet suffering with an open heart, without judgment, without blame, without fear, and we just, we just let it in. Oh yeah, this is hard. It's hard to feel jealous. It's painful to feel despair. It's challenging to feel lonely. And to really feel those things, really let them in, they're not easy. And when we can open to them, what happens is it allows at times some warmth, some friendliness, as if like we would with a friend. When our friends are upset and feeling fear and despair and sadness and loss, right? We 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 can know that. We can at times we can we can hold them. We can embrace them. We can, and that's that's the attitude we're cultivating towards our own pain. 
But it happened, and that's where mindfulness and, and metta and compassion, they really come together, they become one and the same thing. That's really the orientation of the practice. Mindfulness is the, is the gateway, the building block for empathy and the, and the building block for compassion by turning to meet it as it is, to meet these things, and, then, and, and, and to really acknowledge, and, and I often use this phrase, oh, this is suffering, this is painful, this is hard to bear. Another definition of dukkha, this is hard to bear. And with that recognition, it's like, oh yeah, this sucks. This sucks. Oh, and may I be free of suffering. May I hold myself with ease. May I be kind to myself when I'm feeling distress. This last year, I went through an incredibly difficult period of anxiety, which I hadn't gone through for, I don't know, a decade or more, maybe even two decades. Came up very strong for several months. It wasn't just a meditation. Um, Very difficult to be with. Anxiety, in my experience, is one of the most unpleasant things to be with because the very nature of it spins you away from it. It's it's just hard to settle in because the very nature of it wants to not want you to settle. Yeah. And so when it goes on for that duration, you know, all, all, all of the avoidance strategies, just, you just, they just stop working, right? You can only watch so much TV <laughs> or eat so much Ben and Jerry's ice cream or so many movies, and it's like it's still there. And, it, and it's an asking, inviting, can you be with this? So what I learned as we learn again and again is it, I couldn't make the anxiety go away, but I could hold it with a, with an embrace of kindness and softness. And, and if I could soften into it, it was really much more bearable. It didn't make it go away, but it, the, my whole nervous system would settle. And it was tolerable. At times, at times I was resourcing. I was, I was shifting attention, anything away from it, because that's really helpful with anxiety. But really, ultimately, what worked is to soften into it and just go, anxiety is like this. This is anxiety. I'm suffering with anxiety. May I be well? May I be? May I be at ease? You know, and and at some point it started to to wane. And we have this capacity. You all have this capacity to turn to your experiences you've been doing all week, and to turn with kindness. And again, the the, the learning. There's so much richness in that. We fear it so much, and yet it's, you know, look back at where the, the times that you've grown in your life. Where, where is it you've grown? In the struggle, right? In, in the challenge, in the difficulty. It's so funny, we run from it, and yet it's where we get them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up any of those times, many difficult periods in my life, tremendous suffering. I wouldn't give them up because it broke my heart open. There's so much more access to compassion, to love, to, to care, and it also brings a lot of courage. I can be more, I can be fearless with people because I'm not afraid of anything in myself. So what's it to be afraid of in somebody else? Rumi says, the wound is the place where the light enters. The wound is the place where the light enters. Or Cahal Gabran put it this way, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. The pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding.
So I'll leave you with a story and a poem. Story is a good metaphor for when, when we start to transition back in our lives and we're in the mess, the whole catastrophe, as, as Zorba the Greek put it, the full catastrophe. Uh, it's an example of how we uh, may put into practice this, these qualities of mindfulness and metta. A man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in a basket. As they, cross, as they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies, and when told she wouldn't be getting any, immediately began to cry. Thereupon the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go. Don't be upset, it won't be long. And soon they came to the candy aisle, and again the little girl began to uh, shout for candy, and when told she wouldn't have any, she began to wail and tantrum and... And the mother said again, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and we'll be at the checkout stand. When they got to the checkout stand, she began, the little girl began clamoring for gum. And when told she wasn't going to have any gum, it burst into another tantrum and wailed. And her mother said, there, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then we'll go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother interrupted. What do you mean? My little girl's name's Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) So, you know, that's where we need it, right? Right here. Patience with ourselves. Your parents are particularly appreciating that one. So let's um, let's just close and sit for a moment with ourselves. Just turning to meet yourself, your experience, just where you are, wherever that is. to meet ourselves with presence, with kindness, and with compassion. <clears throat> 